two, two weeks ago, and you guys bear with me, who knows what will happen, um, but something beautiful already happened. Two weeks ago, we started talking about um, some things that are foundational to the gospel, right? Because something that's happened is um, we understand all the cliches in the gospel and the words and the phrases, but a lot of those things have been built on the traditions of man. And so we, we know words like justification and righteousness, but the foundation those words have been built on has been wood, hay, and stubble. And because of that, we haven't seen the power of the gospel have its full effect in our lives, right? And so we want our understanding of the gospel and things like righteousness and justification to be built on Jesus Christ and Him crucified and not the traditions of man. And some of you might be thinking, well, what do you mean the traditions of man? We'll just use the word righteousness as an example of how that word has been built on the traditions of man. Because most of our understanding of righteousness and that word righteousness, we think it means for God to be happy with us. And we think it means that he wasn't happy with us. And now he can be happy with us because of righteousness by faith, right? But righteousness means that has no connotation of whether or not God likes you. The word righteousness means to be in the state you were created to be in. And do you know what state you were created to be in? I mean, think about the traditions we've had that word built on. Most of us, even when we think about that, we think we need to be behaving properly. As if God created us so that we could behave properly, and if we could behave properly, then he'd be happy. That's how we built that, that word. We built that word on that type of a foundation. But the word righteousness, to be in the state you were created to be in, means to hit the mark God has for your life. The mark God has for your life isn't proper behavior. The mark God has for your life is the likeness of his immortality. That's why Paul said all have fallen short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the likeness of his immortality. When God said, let us make man, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That means God didn't just want it to create us in the image of his design. He wanted us to be clothed in the likeness of his immortality. Well, Adam didn't eat from the tree of life. Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now, all of a sudden, he wasn't clothed in the likeness of God's immortality. He was clothed in death. That's why Paul would come and say, who shall save me from this body of death? And so when you think of righteousness, what it has to do with is you possessing the very likeness of God's life, which is an incorruptible life, an incorruptible seed. And the way you get that life isn't by what you do. It's about believing or by believing that God has come in the person of Jesus to give you that life as a free gift. That's righteousness. Right? Now that's got nothing to do with how you behave. That's got something to do with whether you received eternal life as a gift or not. Right? And so that's just one of the things. Let me see. I forgot to mess with this. Um, I won't read all through Galatians. And you guys will just have to forgive me if I try and talk fast to, to get through this. But we were looking at Galatians, and I won't read the whole chapter. I'll, I'll read the first verse we were talking about. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. By your own works, you can't be justified. By your own strength, you can't be justified. By you doing the good and not doing the bad, that can't justify you, right? And just ask yourself this. If I do the good and I don't do the bad, can that raise me up out of the grave? Of course not. And that's how you know it can't justify you, 
That's a real clear metric, right? Even Jesus himself. This shocks people. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead because he behaved perfectly. He wasn't raised from the dead because he loved perfectly. Do you know why he was raised from the dead? Because he committed his desire to be raised from the grave into the hands of the Father. That's all he did. He called upon the name of the Father. Father, I desire to be delivered from this body of death. Father, I desire to inherit the glory that I shared with you from the beginning inside of a human body. And I see, because my hands are nailed to a tree, that I can't do anything to help bring that about. I'm here stuck in the place where I'm left only believing that you're going to do it in me. Into your hands I commit my desire for life. So that's what he did. Right? So we, 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 we talked about that, and then we were leading up to this verse. It's, it's verse 20 where it says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's where we're going to try to end with that verse. But just to give a, a small reminder, because it was two weeks ago now. The way people saw justification back in the day, it, in Jesus' day, is you were meant to have a certain life. That's how they saw justification. You were meant to have a certain life. Justification was all about the life you had. And if you had the life you were meant to have, then that life justified you, right? That's what they thought about justification. So possessing the life you were meant to have was the evidence that you were as you should be. That would be righteousness, the state of one who is as they should be. And so if you had the life you were meant to have, that would be the evidence that you are as you should be. That's what they thought about justification. So if you had the good life you're supposed to have, if your life was clothed in beauty and splendor, like that song say, if he watches over every sparrow, Right? If he clothes the lilies in beauty and splendor, how much more will he clothe you? So if your life was clothed in beauty and splendor, we all want a life that's clothed in beauty and splendor, don't we? How many of you like it when you think your life isn't beautiful? Nobody? Have you ever asked yourself why it bothers you so much? Because even deep within your heart, you know you were meant for a certain life. You ever wondered why it bothers you so much when you see injustice? Did anybody ever have to tell you it should bother you? Or did you just immediately know that ain't right? I mean, I say it all the time. The first time I fell off my bike trying to ride my little Hulk bike without the training wheels, and I hit the ground. And the first time I saw blood come out of my body, nobody had to take me over into a class and now teach me that it's not a good sign if the blood's coming out of your body. The moment I saw the blood coming out of my body, there was something in me that said, danger, danger, right? <laughs> danger, Will Rogers, danger. Immediately I knew this isn't the life I'm supposed to have. And that's why you feel anxiety. Because you, something is there that's telling you you don't have the life you're supposed to have. And that's even where the feeling of shame comes from. The reason why we can even feel ashamed when we see things in our life that we don't think are consistent with life. The reason why we even feel condemned when we see the fruit of death in our life is because the knowledge of good and evil comes and tells us you don't have the life you're meant to have. The knowledge of good and evil comes and accuses us and says, you haven't hit the mark God has for your life. You don't have the life you were created to have. What's wrong with you? That's why we even feel shame. I mean, we walk around feeling shame all the time, and none of us ever stop to even think, where does it come from? 
And we, we don't even stop and talk to God about the shame. And where does it come from? And why is it here? And what has he done to come against it? Right? So if your life was clothed in beauty and splendor, we're talking about what people in Jesus' day thought justification meant. Because we've built a theology in Christianity today that has nothing to do with what the apostles in Jesus were busy with, actually. It's something completely different. And so if your life was clothed in beauty and splendor, that was a sign that you hit the mark God had for your life. Clothed in beauty and splendor, that was the sign. Okay? Now, when Paul, you know, Paul was Saul. He wasn't always Paul. He was Saul. When Paul was Saul, <laughs> sounds like a TV show. Isn't there a TV show that has the word Saul in it? Better Call Saul or something? Something like that? I've never seen it. Um, but when Paul was Saul, he was a Pharisee. And his mindset about justification was that way. He thought it was about having the abundant life. Right? Which Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Right? But Jesus came demonstrating the abundant life was completely different than what those dudes thought the abundant life was. Right? And so Paul, he defined the abundant life. He said justification is found in having an abundant life, but he, then he defined the abundant life by the riches of the world. He defined the abundant life by what the world esteemed as a good life. Because right? the world has an idea of what it means to have an abundant life. God also has an idea of what it means to have an abundant life. We see the two pictures in Lazarus and the rich man. Who had the abundant life? The rich man or Lazarus? Well, did it look like he had an abundant life? No, but which one was justified? Lazarus or the rich guy? Well, which one did the world think was justified? The rich guy. Okay, you see the corruption there? All right. So Paul, his treasure was in the earth. He thought the life that could justify him was the good he could gain from the world. And that's what Jesus would call serving mammon. He thought if your life looked good in the world, then that is the life that justifies. He thought gaining the good the world has to offer you, or if your life looked good in the world, that was the equivalent of gaining godliness. That was his whole view there. And so he thought the way to gain a good life from the world was by performing the works of the law. That's what he thought. It wasn't if I perform the works of the law, then God will be happy with me. No, it's if I perform the works of the law, that will be my strength to gather to myself a good life. And that good life will be the good life the world has. And then in me having that good life, that will be the sign that I'm godly. Now that's a very big problem because if you think that way, do you know the first thing you think when you see somebody that you think doesn't have a good life? You judge them immediately as a sinner. Which is what that whole, way, that whole way of thinking does, right? And so Paul didn't just think that justification was found in having the good life the world has to offer. And he, he didn't see that you could gain the life by faith. He saw it was by the, the works of the law. But he thought anyone who didn't have a good life in the world, he thought that meant they were the cursed of God, that they were forsaken of God. He thought that meant they were sinners. That's what they thought it meant. And so Lazarus would have been seen as a sinner. But he had eternal life. And, and to be a sinner means not to be partaking in eternal life. And so if you didn't have a good life, Paul and those guys thought that was a sign. You're a sinner. 
That's like karma, karma, right? If you've done the right thing, you'll have a good life in the world. How many of you think Jesus did the right thing in the earth? Is there ever a time where Jesus didn't make the right decision? How many of you think your decisions are the power into having a good life? Did Jesus make every right decision? How did his life end up? Nailed to a tree. I'm so sorry to tear down all your worldly thinking. I'm not really. That doesn't mean there's no value in being led by the Spirit, right? But you could be led by the Spirit and still end up nailed to a tree. So don't think being led by the Spirit necessarily equals having a life that the world says is good. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? And so that's what they saw. Paul would have seen if someone didn't have a good life in the world, it was a sign they were a sinner. We see it all throughout the scriptures. That's why the disciples, when they came upon the blind guy, said to Jesus, who sinned? that this guy should be born blind. His parents are him. The guy was born blind. I mean, where'd this guy sin? And so they saw the blindness as a sign that he was a sinner. Right? The world says it's not good if you're blind. Therefore, if you're blind, you're a sinner. You guys following that? Okay, so that's how Saul saw things. This is how he viewed justification, righteousness. Righteousness would have been to have honor in the world, to look strong to the world, to look noble to the world, and to look wise to the world, right? If you, looked, if you had all that going for you, then that you were righteous. If you had all that going for you, that was your justification. That was the proof you were godly. You had the best seats in the synagogue. You had all the people bowing in front of you when you walked through the streets. That's what he saw the sign was. And he thought the way you could get all that was by performing the works of the law. Right? That's how he saw it. Now, something miraculous happens to this guy Saul. Right? Because he encounters the glorified man Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he encountered the glorified man, Jesus, his blindness was revealed. I know we've been taught that Jesus made Paul blind or made Saul blind. Jesus isn't the one that struck Saul with blindness. Paul's blindness or Saul's blindness was already there. And it was just revealed in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And in fact, if you read in John chapter 9, after he heals the blind guy, Jesus said, I've come to make those who see blind. And I've come to make those who don't see, I've come to heal their sight. Right? And Jesus wasn't saying, I come to make the Pharisees blind physically. What he's saying is, I come to reveal that these guys are blind guides. And so Paul was a blind guide. He was already blind when he encountered Jesus. How do we know he was already blind? Because he just finished stoning Stephen to death, who was a powerful evangelist and was one of the, the pillars in the early church. And so clearly he wasn't seen, right? Or he wouldn't have just now helped people kill Stephen. And so he was already blind. And then Jesus shows up. Do you know all things are laid bare in the presence of the Lord? That means whatever's going on in you will be revealed in the presence of the Lord. And it's not revealed in the presence of the Lord so you could feel ashamed. It's revealed in the presence of the Lord so he could heal you as we see later on because John prays for Saul, Yohanan, and the scales fall off of his eyes. <laughs> right? And so Jesus revealed the blindness that was already present in Saul so that Saul's sight could be healed. <laughs> he didn't give him blindness. 
We don't even understand those things, right? God shows up, and what's already there is made manifest because nothing can hide from God, and then we blame God that it manifested. I mean, Adam sees his nakedness in the garden. God shows up, and Adam says, it's that woman you gave me. What? God, who told you you were naked? I'm not the one that uncovered your nakedness. Don't blame me, bro. I'm the one who clothes. I'm not the one who uncovers nakedness. How do we know? He clothed him. So we can't blame God for the things that sin produces in the earth and then say God's the one that did it. It says the wages of sin is death. It doesn't say that God gives death. It says sin gives death. It says the gift God has to give is eternal life. We've made God and sin out as if they're buddies, as if they're bros, as if they're playing together, as if God gives sin an assist to destroy people. That's not how it goes down. So Paul, Saul, man, he encountered the glorified man Jesus and, you know, it's a bright light. Like, can you imagine seeing the life of God? Can you imagine standing there when God said, let there be light? And that light just go, bam. That's what it's like when Saul sees Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when Paul sees this great light, I want to try and delve into what he would have been thinking. Because Paul wasn't just like, oh, that's a great light. Oh, my gosh, what are you going to do? When, when Paul sees Jesus and, he, and he, he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, it is Jesus whom you persecute. Listen, all of a sudden, Paul's mind would have been racing. Right? Because all the things he'd ever known, all his doctrines, they're all racing in his mind. Because all of a sudden, when Paul encounters the glorified man, Jesus, on the road to Damascus, he sees the life that justifies inside of Jesus. And that's completely different than the life he thought was, was the life that justifies, which was a good life from the world. What? So now all of a sudden, his mind's racing. He's thinking about the, all these. He sees Jesus, and now he has a reference point for the good life. Right? He didn't have a reference point for what the abundant life was before that. His only reference point was, well, there's things in the world that look good. And if I can gain those things in the world, then that's the abundant life. But now he sees the glorified man, Jesus, who has the very life of God shining out of his body, like on the Mount of Transfiguration. And now all his thoughts about what it means to be justified and the life that justifies all starts being torn down because he sees the life in Jesus that justifies. Right? He says to my, he, and this is, I'm, I'm describing what Paul would have thought. All of a sudden, Paul's treasure was in the earth. And all of a sudden, when he saw Jesus, he would have thought, this is the real treasure. This is the gold, actually. Right? That can anoint a person's eye salve. That they don't behold their nakedness, but that they would behold themselves clothed. He saw Jesus clothed in the very life of God. He said, that's the beauty and splendor. The life of God is the beauty and splendor. That's the treasure. Oh my goodness. That's the life that justifies. That's the abundant life. You have to understand something about Paul, is that wasn't his first reference point for Jesus when he saw Jesus that day, which would cause Paul's mind to race even more, which would really confuse Paul. Because Paul's reference point, before he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, do you know what it was? The cross. He knew who Jesus was. And he knew that that dude was nailed to a tree. He knew the end Jesus met on the cross. 
And when he saw Jesus end up on the cross, Jesus is actually the manifestation of what the parable of Lazarus and the rich man is even talking about. Jesus was Lazarus. There he is looking like the biggest sinner that ever lived. And that was Paul's reference point for Jesus. He's stripped naked, he's flogged to death, a crown of thorns put on his head, mocked, spit on, despised, rejected, hated. That's his end point for Jesus. And he thought all those things were a sign that Jesus was a sinner and that Jesus was ungodly. Isaiah even comes and says that we esteem Jesus smitten and stricken by God. You know, it doesn't say that he was smitten and stricken by God. It says we esteem that he was. It actually says that we smote him, and then we esteem that God did it. Sounds like the Adam man, doesn't it? He, did, he ate from the tree, and then he blamed Eve and God. We nailed Jesus to a cross. We saw all that. We rejected Jesus. We forsook Jesus, and so much so that we nailed him to a tree, and then we said God did it. <laughs> oh, man. Go and read what it says. It says he carried our griefs and our sorrows. It doesn't say he carried the grief of God. It doesn't say he was smitten and stricken by God. It says that he was smitten by us. So that's Paul's reference point for Jesus. And he saw, I mean, the world even thinks that. He must have done something. This is what the New Age, he must have done something really bad in a previous life to end up like this. <laughs> karma. We don't realize we've, we describe Christianity more like karma than heavenly, heavenly language. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. Well, look at all the bad this dude got. So he must have been doing bad. That's what they saw. That's how they defined it. What did it look like outwardly? And so that's what Paul thought about Jesus. The cross is a sign that this dude is ungodly and he's a sinner, right? And now all of a sudden he sees that dude that he thought was ungodly and was a sinner. He sees that dude standing in the glorification of the father's life. What? And he sees that's the life that justifies because that life was even able to justify Jesus from the shame and the accusations that came from the death of the cross. That's the kind of life that justifies. It has to be able to stop someone's mouth, even should they be boasting against somebody because of death. That's the life that justifies. Oh my gosh. I need to be justified from the accusation that comes from the death that's in the world. I need to be justified from the shame that comes upon a person when they're stripped naked and they're nailed to a tree. What's the kind of life that can do that for me? This life, the very life of God. So when Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, he saw the mark God had for mankind. Jesus is the word made flesh about the mark God has for your life. You want to know what God desires for your life? He desires to bring forth his glory inside of your physical body. He desi desires to raise you up from the grave never to be able to die again. He desires for you to, you to know you have a life that died unto sin once for all time and can never die again. That's what he's desiring for your life. That's what Paul saw. And he saw... 
that the whole thing, that everything God was after is that we were always meant to be heirs of God. We were always meant to be heirs of the likeness of God's immortality. And that's the only life that can justify you. That's the only life that can defend your heart against the sin and death that you see in the world. It's the only life that can defend your heart when you see corruptible things around you. It's the only life that can defend your heart when you think your life is out of control. Because I promise you, the life of God is never out of control. And when you see that you have his life, that life justifies you in the face of the world telling you you're out of control. You think Jesus didn't feel out of control when he was nailed to a cross? You think he didn't think that everything was out of his hands when he was nailed to a tree? But he had a life from the Father, and the life he had from the Father defended his heart against the chaos of the cross. It's after Paul encountered the glorified man, Jesus, that's when Paul begins to say, I am crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, now in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Which is a powerful, profound statement about what he came to when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And you don't want to lose sight of what Paul thought about life and who Paul was when he was Saul before he said that. Because it tells you something about what it means when he says it's no longer I who live. He's not just pulling something out of the thin air. He's thinking about the guy and the way the guy lived before he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so when Paul says it's no longer I who live, he's thinking of the man whose treasure was in the earth. The man who was all the time living, serving mammon, because he thought the abundant life was found in the good he could gather to himself. He's thinking of the Saul who thought the way to be justified with life was found in performing the works of the law. That's what he's thinking of. And when the scales fell off Paul's eyes and his blindness was healed, the eye that no longer lived means that when the scales fall off to his eyes, he no longer lived looking to the life he had in the world as if that life could justify him. That's why he goes on to say that he counted everything he had from the world as dung that he might know him and the power of his resurrection. What he's saying is the life that manifested in the resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that can justify me. It's the only thing that can convince me I am as I ought to be. It's the only thing that can persuade me that I have the life I'm meant to have. It's the only thing that can persuade me I have an abundant life. I have a life that abounds so much it even swallows death and corruption. It says death couldn't hold Jesus. He had a life in him, an abundant life, a life that even superabounds over the body or the death that manifested in his body on the cross. So Paul no longer lived, the eye that no longer lived is the Saul who was living in the world, looking into the life he had from the world as if that could justify him. That's when he says, it's Christ who lives in me. When he says it's Christ who lives in me, he's talking about the life he has. He's talking about the life he saw in Jesus that justified Jesus even from the death and the shame of the cross. And he's saying that life dwells in me when he says it's Christ who lives in me. The life that manifested in the body of Jesus' resurrection dwells in me now. And that has become unto me justification. 
That's what he's saying. I used to try to gather the life in the world to myself, thinking that that could justify me. But now with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ dwelling in my body, that is my justification. It is the sign that I am as I ought to be. It is the sign that I have the life I was meant to have. It is the sign that I'm in the state that I should be in. We're always looking around to see if we're in the state that we should be in or if everything's okay. Paul began to say, the fact that Christ is living in me is the sign that everything's okay. That's what he's talking about. That became the sign he lived by, not what he saw without, right? It's the life of Christ himself, the life the Father of lights has in himself that dwells in me that justifies me, that persuades me. I have the life I'm meant to have as I walk in the earth. And everything in the earth is all the time trying to tell you you don't have the life you're meant to have. You know why the life in the world is always telling you that? Because it's death. It's the voice of death. That's the voice of accusation. God had to do something that could that could come and stand up inside of us and defend our hearts every time the voice of death tried to speak against us, telling us, you don't have the life you're meant to have. And the way he did it was he poured out of himself his life, <laughs> that his life could dwell in us. And every time we hear the voice telling us you don't have the life you're meant to have, his life would stand up inside of us and it would defend our name. It would defend our heart. It would defend our honor. Justification isn't you have to be justified to God. It's that God comes and stands next to you by giving you his life so his life justifies you in the presence of everything that tries to accuse you. It's Christ who lives in me, Paul says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can come and try to make me ashamed, but the very life of Christ dwells in me and defends me from all your accusations. You see? <laughs> That's... It's Christ who lived in Paul that ministered to his heart, that told him nothing can separate me from the love of God. Every time. You, you thinking when he was floating in the ocean, he heard that he was separated from the love of God? You think when he was getting flogged and stoned and left for dead, he was hearing that he was separated from the love of God? But he, he was living by a different sign, the sign of Christ in him. And that life ministered to him and defended him. And he began to see nothing can separate me from the love of God. And he saw it wasn't because of the good that happened to him in the world. It was because he had the life of God himself. Right? That's why Paul would go on to say that he's dead to the world and the world is dead to him. That's what he's talking about. He was no longer living as if the life that justifies is found in the good he could gather to himself in the world. He no longer lived trying to justify himself with the life he could produce in the world. That's the I who was, who was no longer alive. You guys follow that? We all have stuff like that in our own lives. In my life, I had this ability to run since I was building on that. And do you know what I thought? Look at this ability I have to run. If I could sow my ability to run, then I can use that ability to run to produce a good life. And this good life that I could produce through my running that good life can justify me. That good life can prove that I am as I ought to be. That good life can be my shield and my buckler. That good life I could produce by my own running can now be my exceedingly great reward. It can actually bring forth the fruit of life that I know I'm meant to have. You see, it was 
I didn't know it at the time, but it was I who was living. I was living thinking I could produce a life that could look so beautiful that that life could justify me. There's only one life that's beautiful enough to justify you because you're the image of God. And, and since you're the image of God, the only life that can actually justify you is the life of the Father himself, right? And it's in you being persuaded you have that life. And so Paul comes and says, the life he lives now in the flesh, he lives by the faith of the Son of God. So he's no longer living like he was before. And I'm going to try and rush through this last part. i got 10 minutes. The life he lives in the flesh, he lives by the faith of the Son of God. So Walt, when Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he saw it wasn't about performing the works of the law or performing carnal principles that, that produced the life that justified Jesus. The reason he saw that is because that dude's hands were nailed to a tree. Not only that, you know, Jesus violated the Sabbath in all those guys' eyes. Not the spirit of the Sabbath, but he violated the letter of the Sabbath. He, he was touching lepers. I mean, he touched the woman with the issue of blood. He didn't remove himself from the camp for seven days. He touched the lepers. He didn't remove himself from the camp for seven days. And his hands were nailed to a tree. And so Paul saw that Jesus, this life that Jesus had, that justified Jesus even from the death and the shame of the cross, that Jesus didn't get it from performing the works of the law. And he didn't get it from performing carnal commandments. He didn't get it from anything that he did. He saw that all Jesus did was look to the Father. Jesus saw the Father there with him. And he saw the life the Father had in himself. And that Jesus called upon the name of the Father. That's what he saw Jesus did. And so Paul began to see there's a faith in Jesus' heart, and that's what produced the life that justified him. And so Paul began saying, what is this faith that was in this dude's heart? And we'd all, a big pillar of what we gather in this church and talk about is the faith that was in Jesus' heart. Forget about what did Jesus do, what did Jesus believe? What did Jesus see? Because I promise you, if you believe the same thing he believed, it will produce the same life in you. And that's what Paul saw. Well, what did this dude believe then? Forget about the works of the law. There's a faith in this dude's heart that produces the likeness of God's immortality. And that's the life I'm meant to have because I'm the image of God. So what was this dude believing? Now, when Jesus was in the earth, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and, and if you want to get real specific, when he was on the cross, he lived by a certain faith. We, we, we don't understand that Paul got all his doctrine from what he saw in Jesus. So Paul would come and say, it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. If you want to know the faith that was in Jesus, it's not I who am living, it's the Father who's living in me. <laughs> That's what he would have been thinking when he was nailed to the, tr the tree, if you catch my drift. Paul developed his doctrine by beholding it in the man Jesus. And then he began cracking it open, right? And so the scriptures call the faith that was in Jesus' heart the faith of the Son of God. That's the faith of Jesus Christ. What was this guy's heart filled with when he walked in the earth in the likeness of sinful flesh, and more specifically, when he was nailed to a tree, right? And so we're just going to crack that open for a second. Jesus knew the life that justifies wasn't the life that was in the world. He knew the treasure wasn't if he could have the good life the world offers. I mean, he could have taken all the kingdoms when Satan offered him all the kingdoms. Why didn't he? He didn't use his willpower. 
You know what he thought? Well, that's worthless. How can that glorify my body with immortality? Jesus could have made himself the greatest king that ever lived in the earth. You think Jesus couldn't have persuaded everybody to make him king of the whole earth? But he didn't do it. Why not? Because he didn't think that could glorify the earth, nor did he think it could glorify his body with immortality. So he didn't see the life he could gain from the world as a treasure. He could have gained it all. He could have been the greatest poker player. He could have, I mean, you think Solomon had all the riches of the world? So, one greater than Solomon came, his name's Jesus. And he could have gathered every good thing in the world to himself if he wanted it. But that wasn't the treasure to him. He saw the treasure was the life that the father has in himself. The life that he shared with the father from the beginning. The life that the father poured out on him when the dove came down from heaven and the father said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus knew the life that justifies is the life he shared with the father from the beginning. Jesus lived in the earth by a faith that said nothing can separate me from the love of God. He saw the Father's love in the fact that the Father had given that Jesus could have the same life that the Father has in himself. Jesus says the Father has life in himself, and he has given that I could have life in myself. And in that Jesus had the life of the Father in himself, he saw that nothing that could happen to him in the world could ever be a sign that he was separated from the Father's love because the Father's love is found in him giving me a life that even overcomes death. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know the joy that was set before Jesus? Jesus the man, not Jesus God. If we want to talk about the joy set before Jesus and we're describing Jesus as God on the cross, then we would say the joy was us. But when we're talking about Jesus, the son of man, and we're seeing ourselves as the son of man in his face, the joy that was set before Jesus was the glorification of his flesh. The glorification of his flesh. It was the glory that he shared with the father from the beginning. Jesus says to the father in John 17, glorify me with thy own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. When Jesus was on the cross, it's that that was lifted up in his eyes. It was the Father and the life Jesus shared with the Father that was lifted up in his sight. The faith that Jesus lived by on the cross, do you know what it was? The Father's in me and I'm in the Father. We are one. Go read John 17. He prayed that we would know that they were in each other. And then we come and describe the cross as if the Father wasn't in the Son anymore. But Jesus just prayed about the cross and prayed that we would see the Father was in him and he was in the Father. I'm telling you, you wonder why you don't see the power of God in your life? Because you've been taught a gospel that's no gospel at all. It's not because you're bad people. It's not because you're rebellious and you just won't obey. How can you be persuaded of the truth if you haven't heard it? <laughs> How can they? Believe unless they hear. How can they hear unless a preacher is sent? Jesus knew he was in the Father and the Father was in. This is the faith he was living by on the cross. He knew that even though sin was manifesting death in his flesh, he knew that sin was not the father of his life. He knew his life was from above. The Father in me and I'm in the Father. Therefore, this death sin is manifesting. My life is not hid in this death that sin is manifesting. My life is hid in the Father, and the Father is hid in me. This is the faith Jesus lived by. He knew he was dead to sin and alive to God. 
Paul comes and talks about this in Romans. To be dead to sin and alive to God. To be dead to the life that sin produced in the world, which is a life called death, a life full of corruption. And see that you're alive to God in the life he has in himself, which is incorruptible and can't be corrupted by moth or rust. This is the faith Jesus was living by. He knew the life he had inside of this earthen vessel. That's what justified him from the shame of the cross. The shame comes when you think you don't have the life you're meant to have. You think the cross wasn't telling Jesus he doesn't have the life he's meant to have? He's the son of God. He's actually from above. I mean, this is the dude that from before anything was. This is the guy who in whom is only life. And now all of a sudden he's filled with death in his body. Peter says he was put to death in the flesh. You think that death that manifested in his flesh wasn't telling him you ought to be ashamed of yourself? I mean, when people tell us that, aren't they telling us that because they see something about us that isn't as it's supposed to be? You think that death wasn't telling Jesus? You ought to be ashamed of calling yourself the Son of God. This isn't the life the Son of God would have. (laughs) The life Jesus shared with the Father was lifted up in his sight right in the place of those accusations coming to him. And it disesteemed the death of the cross. And it justified his heart from the accusation that came from the body of death. He didn't try to despise the death. He didn't say a good little Christian boy will despise the death. That's not what he did. What he did was he saw the life he shared with the Father from the beginning lifted up and he saw that life warring against death. He saw that life is greater than this death. Right? The life that the Father has in himself that he gave that Jesus would also have in himself when placed next to the death of the cross overshadowed the shame of the cross and it strengthened Jesus's heart. It proved him. It told him you are as you ought to be. You have the life you're meant to have. That's what it told him. And that put his flesh to rest and it guarded his heart from fear, right? So Paul says, that's the faith Paul saw. Paul says the life he now lives in the flesh, he lives by the faith of the son of God. And Paul began living his life in the earth, beholding his life in Jesus, in the life of Jesus in him. Just like Jesus prayed. I pray that they see that I'm in you and you're in me. And then they'll be in me and I'll be in them. And then they'll see that they're in me and I'm in them. And then therefore I'm in you and you're in me and we're all one. It's not just some hocus pocus. Oh, isn't it nice that we're all one? It's talking about the life you have to be one. And so Paul lived his life in the earth beholding Jesus and beholding himself in Jesus. Like John would come and say, our fellowship is with the Son, the life that manifested in the Son. And truly, that has given us fellowship with the Father and the life that's in the Father. This is what Paul is saying when he says, it's Christ in me. It's a different way of saying what John said. His intimacy was with the life that manifested in Jesus. And through that, he was intimate with the life the Father has in himself. He walked in the earth justified by the life of the Father. So when death, tribulation, lack, confusion, chaos came knocking at Paul's door trying to accuse him and tell him his life wasn't as it was meant to be and it was trying to make him ashamed of the life that he had and tell him he didn't have the life he's supposed to have, what happened was the same faith that was in Jesus' heart on the cross was dwelling in Paul, ministering to Paul, exalting the Father in his sight, exalting the life that was in the Father in his sight, telling him he's not separated from the love of God. Right? That's why he would later come and say, whether peril, whether shipwreck, (laughs) whether life, 
whether death, nothing can separate me from the love of God. Where do you think Paul got that? He got it because he saw Jesus. And he thought the cross was a sign that Jesus was separated from the love of the Father. But then he saw Jesus raised from the dead by the Father, which means the Father had to have loved him. And so nothing could, not even the cross could separate Jesus from the love of the Father. So nothing in this world could be a sign I'm separated from the love of the Father. God deposited his life in you so his life could dwell in you and all the time tell you that. Because you would see you have the Father's life. If you have the Father's life, you could only have it because he loves you. And actually the only thing that could save you from the hell that's in this world is if you have his life. You can't be saved from the hell in the world by avoiding the hell in the world. You gotta have a life that even overcomes the hell. You guys have been very patient, and I'm three minutes over. Three more minutes. I got to finish this. Nothing can separate you from the Father's love. That doesn't mean nothing can go wrong for you in the world. We tend to judge whether or not we're loved by what we think is happening right or wrong. That's because that's we've been taught our treasure is in the world. That's because we've been taught our life is held in the world. That's because we've been taught that the world is the father of our life. And so what it, means, what it means is nothing can go wrong for you in this world, whether peril, whether sword, whether disease, whether famine, whether persecution, whether life, whether death. None of those things that can go wrong could ever be a sign that you're separated from the love of God. That's what the gospel come to teach you. And it shows you the Father brought a plague to death in the body of Jesus' resurrection. So when, you're, when, the, when the things you encounter in the world are trying to tell you you're separated from the love of God, you see that you have the life of God inside of you, and that life brought a plague to death inside the body of Jesus. That's God warring a warfare inside of you. And then you see it. And that's why you could say that you're more than conquerors. And that's why you would even believe that you're a more than a conqueror. Right? And so the Father has made you whole by giving you the life he has in himself. And that's the evidence he loves you. You are an heir of God. You've inherited the fullness of God in human flesh. The Son is in you and you are in the Son and you share with the Son in the life he shared with the Father from the beginning. And that's the sign God loves you and that's the sign you have the life you're meant to have. That's the sign. Romans 6 says, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Do you know what it means to be dead to sin? I just briefly touched on it. Your life isn't born from sin. Sin is not the father of your life. The world is not the father of your life. Whatever life you see that you have from this world, that's not your life. The world isn't the father of your life. Your life has not been begotten from the weakness in these mortal bodies or the weakness in the earth. Your life isn't held in the happenings of this world. Your life is from above. That's what it means to be born again. It's not some fanciful thing where now God likes you. It's talking about the life you have having come from above and not from the world. That's what it means. Your life's been born from the word of truth. It's been born again from an incorruptible seed. An incorruptible seed it's been born from. God himself is the father of your life. Your life is under a continuous ministration of God's life. You're under the reign of an indestructible life. 
The Father has life in himself, and he's given that you could have his life also by giving you Jesus. That's how Christ lives in you. It's not about what you do. It's about do you have the life that manifested in the resurrection of Jesus? That's what it means for Christ to live in you. The life that is Christ, that was manifested in the resurrected Christ, dwells in you. Let that life be exalted in your sight as you walk in this world. That life overshadows the death in the earth, the calamity in the earth, the imperfections in the earth. We actually want perfection. The only perfection there is, is to have the life of God. That's what perfection is. We say perfectionism is bad. Well, if you think you can make or you can have perfection through the things of the world, it is bad. But if you define perfectionism as inheriting God himself, well, you can see you've been made perfect. And then you could find your desire to be perfect, satisfied in having his life. <laughs> and now all of a sudden you stop trying to be perfect through all the things externally. You see, I am perfect. You've been perfected once for all time. That life that the Father has, that he's given you in Jesus, that life rebukes the devourer. That life justifies you from the accusation that your life isn't as it ought to be. Right? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for giving us your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that your Spirit hears all things, knows all things, guides us into all things. Lord, we just thank you that your Spirit will lift you up in our sight, will lift up the life that you have in yourself, the life that manifests it in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that we'll walk in this world beholding that life and that we'll find ourselves being justified continuously by beholding ourselves in you and uh, beholding you in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've been given to do that inside of us. And we just make ourselves available for that. Amen. Glory to God. If anybody wants prayer, I'll pray for you. Thank you for allowing me to talk so long. I went on for 20 minutes in the beginning. I didn't intend to, but I did anyway. God bless you guys. God bless you guys.